We're in Mark chapter 14. If you'd like to open your Bibles there, navigate on your device, Mark chapter 14. We're going to look at the first 11, well, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to cover. Mark 14, 1 through 11. If you're new or visiting, we study through the Bible a book at a time, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. The topic this morning, Jesus praises Mary for anointing him with costly spikenard as they were eating supper. The title of our message, I love the smell of spikenard in the meeting. All right, well, first service was a complete dud, by the way, so I just, well, no, that, occasionally first service rises to the occasion, but uh, not usual. Uh, and it doesn't matter who comes. I can say that honestly, because if you came first service, it would still be dead. Uh, first service just has a, a pallor about it is the only way I can. Is that a word? I think that, and I think it's the correct word, to tell you the truth. It's our pallor service. So anyway, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thanks for our uh, meeting this morning. Thank you for the word of God that's open before us. Thank you for ears to hear what the spirit has to say to us. Uh, Lord, The most important thing is that we would see Jesus risen from the dead, coming soon, and that our hearts would be made glad by it, be prepared for it, be excited for it, and uh, Lord, in every way, uh, be revealing your love to a lost and dying world. We thank you in Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. They're called air smellitzers, they really are. They were named after howitzers, only they emit smells, not shells. You think that's pretty clever? Uh, It wasn't mine, but anyway, I thought I'd use it anyway. They can be found all over Disney parks, emitting smells in certain areas that match your surroundings. You'll notice the scent of baking cookies and vanilla as you walk up Main Street, USA. Salty sea air when you're in line for Pirates of the Caribbean. Fresh citrus on Soarin' over California, which I guess is Soarin' over the world now, and the scent of honey on Pooh's Adventure. The Smellitzer operates like an air cannon, aiming the scent up to 200 feet across a room towards an exhaust system. Guests traveling on the moving vehicles pass through the scene as the appropriate scent drifts across their path. Regulated by computer, the scent can be triggered for a fresh aroma just prior to each vehicle's arrival. Now, Prior to this, I forget what area it was, but they tried this in theaters. They called it smell-o-vision, and they would emit smells during the movie. The trouble is there was no exhaust system and no way to really calculate it, and so the smells would just kind of pile up until you had everything together, and it was smelly-vision. And so these guys at Disney, I mean, they've perfected this. Now, a powerful fragrance is at the center of our Bible study. It's spikenard, a rare and expensive oil from India. Mary pours it over Jesus' head and feet in order to anoint him. She didn't need a smell for the aroma to fill that room. As powerful as the smell may have been, the significance was in its symbolism. Jesus said of the anointing in verse 8, She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. The disciples of Jesus had a different response to the fragrance of spikenard, especially Judas. He despised it and planned how he might betray Jesus. These two contrary responses remind us of another place in the Bible that uses fragrances and talks about a division over it. In 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16, we read, For we are to God 
the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life. In that room some 2,000 years ago, Mary was the aroma of death to one and the aroma of life to others. Today, in whatever rooms we are in as Christians, whether we know it or not, we are giving off the aroma of either eternal life or eternal death. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, doing what you can for Jesus is the fragrance of eternal death among those who are perishing. And number two, doing what you can for Jesus is the fragrance of eternal life among those who are saved. Let's take a look, first of all, at what we're calling the fragrance of death. The history of body odor is fascinating. It really is. The ancient Romans, for example, were fanatic about overcoming body odor. Not only did they bathe all the time, they bathed in perfume. They perfumed their animals, their pets, and their horses. And so they were conscious of the smells around them, and they were trying to overcome them. The Middle Ages were ripe with body odor, mostly because of the church. The church frowned upon nakedness even in your bath. So folks quit bathing. Only the wealthy could afford perfumes and ointments to mask their stank. Have you ever heard the expression, mum's the word? In 19, excuse me, 1888, mum was the name of the first trademarked antiperspirant. How many years of human history before you get to an antiperspirant? Think about that the next time you're watching an old movie. Ever dry came next. It should have been called never dry because of how long it stayed wet on you after application. It also stained your clothing, used too much of it, and it ate through your clothing because of the chemicals involved. Who knew it was so hard to smell so good? The action surrounding the aroma of Jesus' anointing stinks. And so let's look at it in verse 1. After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Passover, the annual observance and commemoration of the passing over of the houses of the Israelites by the death angel in the killing of the firstborn in Egypt. The last of the plagues. Uh, Those that did not have the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, the death angel came and took the firstborn in death. It was celebrated on the 14th day of the month Nisan, which is around our March or April. It's the first month of the Jewish religious year, and it continued into the early hours of the 15th day of the month. The Passover lamb would be chosen four days prior, then it would be slain on the afternoon of the 14th and eaten after sundown, which according to Jewish reckoning started the 15th. So sundown is the end of the Jewish day beginning the next day. The Passover observance was immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread in commemoration of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt from the 15th to the 21st day of the month. Thus, it was either Tuesday or Wednesday of the final week of Jesus on earth. There are different ways of reckoning the days, and and it was Tuesday or Wednesday. In two days, he would be crucified just as the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple in fulfillment of the prophecies that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I always like to mention that whenever we talk about Passover, Jesus was crucified just at the right time just as the lambs were being sacrificed in the temple on that Passover. He was the final Passover lamb, uh, and he's called our Passover in the New Testament, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Now you talk about corrupt leaders. The top religious leaders in Israel were seeking some trickery by which they could apprehend and murder Jesus who they knew to be innocent of any crime. Do schools still use the program Character Counts? Well, it does count, that is, in all of us, but especially in our leaders. Character is a better predictor of what a person will actually do than all of their promises. Verse 2 says, they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. There were tens of thousands of pilgrims in Jerusalem, maybe even hundreds of thousands, if you trust the math of the Jewish historian Josephus. And so tens of thousands, maybe a couple of hundred thousand, not during the feast doesn't mean they were against acting while it was Passover because they did act during Passover when the right opportunity presented itself. It meant that they had to be cautious and stealthy. The crowds favored Jesus and the religious leaders could not risk a riot were they to take him openly to kill him. They got just the opportunity they needed from a most unlikely source from one of Jesus' own followers. Drop down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. Never ascribe to Judas any positive motives. Some do. You'll see this on educational television. You'll see this in the movies and on stage. They say, for example, that he was trying to force Jesus to act as the Messiah by engineering a conflict between he and the religious leaders that would force the Lord to action and to establish his kingdom. And so the idea is that Jesus was a reluctant hero and Judas was acting for him on his behalf to try to get him to uh, get over his shyness, I guess, and come forward with the kingdom of God. Never ascribe any positive motives to Jesus. That is a motive made up by extra biblical writers. The one motive ascribed to him in the Bible, he may have had other motives, but the one we're sure of is greed. In his gospel, John records that Judas was the disciple who held the money bag for the ministry and that he regularly stole from it. John also reveals that Judas led the criticism of Mary anointing Jesus with the costly ointment because it could have fetched a pretty penny and he wanted more money to steal. When Judas goes to betray Jesus, he wants to be paid for it. The infamous 30 pieces of silver he received may have been a down payment with more to come after the deed was done. Judas may have had other motives, as I said, but he was greedy for sure. We don't glorify greed. No one would do that. We believe it to be a bad quality. But do we understand how very bad it is? It is no minor sin. It is uh, up there on the list. It is the sin of Judas. And I mention that because a lot of times I hear about people being thrifty or frugal. And that's okay. But sometimes I wonder if thriftiness or frugality is being a cover for greed And the Lord really wants us to be generous. And you just can't get away from the fact that God is generous and extravagant in his generosity. And not very thrifty when it comes to what he's given for us. He gave his only begotten son that we might have eternal life. And so uh, greed, it's a bad thing. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad and they promised to give him money. He had asked for it and they promised to give it to him. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. So here they had a man inside. They had a deep undercover agent. Except that Jesus knew about it. You find this out as you read through the accounts. The disciples didn't know, but Jesus knew what was going on. 
I don't want you to think, however, that Judas was somehow predestined to betray the Lord from eternity past. That would be like saying he was predestined for hell from the time that he was conceived. As the story unfolds, the gospels show that Jesus actually gave Jesus, or Judas rather, space to repent. If Judas had repented, God would have fulfilled the prophecies about his betrayal some other way. We call that other way God's providence. Now, how can I say that with any confidence? I say it on account of the glimpse we get of God's providence in the Old Testament book of Esther. Esther, you'll remember, was the queen of Persia just when a wicked anti-Semite named Haman convinced the king to issue decrees that Jews could be exterminated throughout his kingdom. Esther's uncle, Mordecai, wanted Esther to go before the king in order to beg for the lives of the Jews. But there was a problem, two problems actually. The king didn't know Esther was a Jew. She had kept it hidden from him. And secondly, to add to her dilemma, if you went before the king without an express invitation, he might execute you, and it had been quite some time since Esther had been invited into the king's presence. So she had a dilemma. Mordecai was unmoved. He said to his niece, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? And indeed, it seemed to be Esther's destiny. In the context of what we're illustrating, when you read the book of Esther on the surface, you might say she was predestined to go before the king and to save her people. She was in the right place at the right time. Who else could do it? But if you read the story carefully, you'll see that she had a real free will decision to make. She could have refused. What would have happened if Esther refused? Well, Mordecai puts it this way. He says, this is Esther 4.14. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God seemed to have provided Esther an opportune moment, but if she chose otherwise, God would have provided deliverance for his people some other way. I like to say that God is not held hostage by these things. And so Esther had a free will decision to make, and if she had said no, which she was leaning towards at first, God would have done it another way. Judas, therefore, could have repented. He did not. Instead, he's infamous for betraying Jesus, just as Jesus was planning to die for his sins on the cross. The aroma in that room was, for Judas, the aroma of death. Now, you and I, we are the smell of death to those who are perishing, but actually the smell of death can be a good thing. Here's what I mean. Sometimes a bad smell can be a good thing. Natural gas is odorless, but they add a substance called mercaptan so that you can detect potentially fatal gas leaks. It is a smell of death that leads you to life. And so when you start smelling gas, what do you do? You get out of Dodge. You think, hey, I shouldn't be smelling gas. It's hard here in Hanford because everything smells like sulfur. But, you know, with a discriminating nasal palate, you can distinguish between the water and natural gas, Mercaptan. But it's the smell of death that leads to life, isn't it? It's pretty interesting. Uh, Gas leaks, by the way, don't mess with them. Let a professional do it. My dad taught me that when I was a young boy. Taught me that the hard way. We had an enormous heater at the auto shop my dad owned. And every winter, there was the ritual of trying to get it to light. And my dad was one of those people who thinks 
wait five minutes in between lighting. That's crazy. And so, you know, you turn the gas on, try and light it. It wouldn't like turn the gas on, you know, and stuff. And my dad's theory for detecting gas leaks was just to light a match. And if there was any gas, it would reveal itself. And so this one time, we were all in different parts of the shop. And all of a sudden, we literally heard an explosion. And some of us got to see my dad blown out of the heater and his hair on fire. Uh, Now, he was okay which made our laughter all the more uh, poignant, you know. But uh, anyway, I learned not to use matches uh, to detect gas leaks, even though I'm tempted to do that sometimes. I'm, I don't know, just, you don't want me around anything dangerous for sure. If you are a Christian, you're Christ-like, right? You will smell like Jesus. I mean, it comes with it. I don't know if you ever think about this, probably not, because it's, it's more of an illustration, but you smell like Jesus. Too much time out in the world interferes with the aroma of Jesus, causing you to stink. That's why Jesus, when he washes the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13, he says, I only need to wash your feet, not your whole body. And it illustrates the fact that you've been saved and you're clean, but when you're walking out in the world, you pick up defilements the way you would if you were barefoot in a first century street. And so you'll stink a little bit if you don't get that cleaned up. Then, of course, if you're in outright sin, that has a stink of its own. But it can be washed again and again by the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to forgive you your sins. And so you smell like Jesus except for the world and sin which can be dealt with by the word of God and by repentance. Uh, and, And then you get back to smelling the way you should. And so day in and day out, you should know that your aroma of Christ, it fills the room. And it leads those non-believers in proximity to have to confront their own mortality and eternity. Some to a greater degree, some to a lesser degree. But anytime you're there, you're saying, if you're a Christian, you're saying Jesus Christ is alive and risen from the dead. And he gives off an aroma of life. And that aroma is a life-giving aroma to some and a death-revealing aroma to others. And, and so give people a whiff of Jesus, I guess, is a good way of putting it. In verses 3 through 9, doing what you can for Jesus is the fragrance of eternal life among those who are saved. In most walks of life, we admire and applaud a person who is totally dedicated to their pursuit. In fact, we expect them to go far beyond what would be considered average or normal. We, we appreciate the athlete or the politician or almost anybody in any walk of life that really goes after it hard. But when a believer in Jesus Christ expresses wholehearted devotion, even Christians tend to scoff. We label that Christian a fanatic and we urge them to dial it back a few notches. Well, Mary went full fanatic on the disciples and we see the reaction that they had as we begin verse 3. Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask of very costly spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. First of all, you couldn't dine with lepers. This was something Jewish law forbade. And so they wouldn't have been there eating with a guy with active leprosy. Second of all, Jesus never met a leper that he didn't heal. And so this guy is Simon, the former leper. I think he kept the designation, the leper, to emphasize the healing Jesus had performed upon him. It was sort of his testimony. Some of us uh, could 
isolate and reduce our testimony to a, a certain designation. I was Gene the so-and-so, or you were so-and-so, and, and, and in terms of what the Lord had delivered you out of. Plus, I think it was something he had fun with. Imagine meeting him and having him introduce himself, say, hey, I'm Gene, who are you? I'm Simon the leper. Whoa! I'm not even supposed to be around you. Just as I'm getting to ready to yell or pick up a son, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I am the former leper. Jesus healed me of my leprosy. And what a mind blower that would be. Yeah, can you imagine what it would be like to, to, for a leper? You know, you've seen some of these portrayed in movies. Their fingers are falling off and their face is falling off and their ears are falling off. And, and then all of a sudden to meet this guy and, and you, you'd have no idea who he was. And he says, I'm Simon the leper. No. Yes, I am. What happened to you? Jesus happened to me. And so I think he had fun with this. We never think of people in the Bible as having fun. Uh, it's because, I, well, I don't know why it's because, we just don't. But I think they had a great sense of humor and Simon made the most of this. The woman was Mary. She's the sister of Lazarus and Martha. We know that from the account in the other gospels. Mark doesn't choose to tell us, but that doesn't mean we don't know. We see her always as Mary the worshiper, as opposed to her sister, Martha the worker, because of a dinner recorded in the Gospels when Martha complained her sister wasn't helping her with the dishes. Jesus said that Mary had chosen the better part sitting under his teaching. But essentially, he said, hey, the dishes can wait. Let's all have a little Bible study right now. And, and, and I'm sure Mary would have helped later on, but Martha wanted to get things done. It doesn't mean that worship always trumps work. In the Thessalonian letters, the Apostle Paul has to rebuke the believers who have quit working to wait for Jesus to return. He says at one point, if they don't work, don't feed them anymore. And so they were acting like they were so spiritual that they were waiting for the Lord to return, but they were mooching off of the rest of the fellowship. And Paul said, yeah, that's not what worship is all about. We are to work and occupy ourselves until that day, which could be at any moment, but if they don't want to work, then they shouldn't eat. And so there's a time for work, and there's a time for worship, and we need to uh, know what those are. Oil of spikenard came from India. It was costly, 300 denarii, worth a working man's wage for an entire year. So whatever it is you make in a year's time, and whatever you could purchase for that, uh, week's worth of groceries at Save Mart, uh, then, uh, you know, I'm just kidding. Well, actually, I'm not. Two weeks. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the value of the gift. But it was costly beyond money, and this is important. It was precious to Mary on many levels. It wasn't something she went out and bought that afternoon at the Spikenard shop. It was probably a family heirloom. It was probably her wedding dowry. And so, financially, it was worth a lot, but we don't know how much money the Mary, Martha, and Lazarus family had. 300 denarii might not have meant that much to them. But if you factor in that it's a family heirloom that is for her dowry for when she gets married, which is very important in their culture, now you understand that it's worth a lot more. Financially, emotionally, psychologically, and socially, there was a great sacrifice going on here. She poured it on Jesus' head, all of it. I'd be the first one in that crowd to say, weird. But that's because I'm not always sensitive to something more spiritual going on a little bit below the surface. And so verse 4, there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They criticized her sharply. 
As mentioned, Judas led the criticism because he was a thief, but it's clear the other 11 disciples shared his indignation. Their criticism was logical, and you could even say it was spiritual because they were concerned about, or at least expressed a concern for the poor. But as we'll see, they were wrong on every level. Being a Christian doesn't mean logic must be set aside, except that sometimes logic must be set aside. If everything you do as a believer while serving God makes perfect sense and it's arrived at by careful planning, then you're probably not hearing from God, at least some of the time. God told Abram to leave his home. But if you're familiar with the story in Genesis, he didn't tell him where he was going. He walked by faith. And though we now admire him, had we encountered Abram in his early days, we would have thought him to be some kind of a crazy fanatic. Your name is Abram, where are you going? I don't know. God told me he would show me a place. Uh, Could you imagine somebody saying that to you today? You'd think they were a little bit off their rocker. At one point, God renamed Abram Abraham. You know what that means? The father of many or of multitudes. Can you imagine Abraham meeting new people? So, you're the father of many. How many kids do you have anyway? For a long time, the answer was none. Then after that, the answer was one. I'm the father of multitudes. Whoa, man, you must have babysitters like crazy. How many kids? One. It's, we look at it, you see, we look back and we think, oh, Abraham, wow, look, read about him in Romans. He's the father of the faith. At the time, he would have been ridiculed because he was doing something that didn't really make sense. You can't always get out your yellow pad and write positives and negatives and go with the side that seems more positive. There are moments when logic must be set aside in favor of the obedience of faith. I can't tell you when those moments happen in your life, but they have to from time to time if you're following the Lord because we are to walk by faith as well and not by sight. But Jesus said, verse 6, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. The disciples must have had a lot of that moment moments. You know what I'm talking about where people say that moment when you misinterpret someone's worship for waste. And so they should have kept their mouth shut, uh, but they couldn't wait to criticize her, and then Jesus puts them in the know. Rocky Balboa was big on reputation. You remember his famous speech to that teenage girl? They don't remember you, they remember the rep. And then she told him to get lost or something like that. But Mary, she had a reputation for worship. The boys shouldn't have been surprised by her extravagance. In fact, they ought to have been wondering what she was going to do because she was the one who always led. She was in the vanguard of worship, you might say. If somebody was going to worship Jesus, it was going to be Mary. And and so they weren't really ready for that or they were ready to criticize her, which is sad. What is your spiritual reputation? Do you have one? Or if it's not a good one, then there's still time to work on it. Another thing here, we should make it a goal to not trouble other believers. There are times for teaching and admonishing, correcting and rebuking. What I'm talking about here is something different, where through maybe insensitivity, you say things that trouble someone for no good reason. Or in the context of what we're talking about, maybe a brother or sister in Christ comes up and they share something that the Lord has put on their heart, and you immediately think it's illogical, unspiritual, and crazy. And instead of stepping back and thinking, 
Let me give this a minute to digest. Let me pray about this. You immediately say, that is stupid. That's illogical, unspiritual. I just got out of a financial seminar and you're supposed to never do that. You'll never have enough money for retirement if you do that. Uh, This will never happen if you do that. If you pencil this out, it's not gonna work out. How many Christian dreams have been dashed and crushed by, by our well-meaning, troublesome counsel to people who are literally hearing from God. And they, they're trying to determine, hey, did I really hear from God? Would God really call me to do something like that? I'll ask one of my Christian friends, and when they tell me no, they squash that thing like a bug. Oh, okay, because I don't want to do anything that would be considered fanatic or out of the ordinary. And so we need to be a little bit careful here. And again, I can't tell you, uh, certainly there are things that people do that are crazy. I've told this story before, but there used to be a lady in town. If she knew you had some kind of a need, or she'd just go up and give you a check for $100. Here's $100. The Lord put you on my heart. Here's a check. Problem is, when you uh, deposited that check, nine times out of ten, it bounced. And if you talked to her about it, she said, well, it's my faith account. God told me to give you that check, and he's going to have to cover it. All right. Right on. A pastor friend of mine had that happen to him, and not only then he was he couldn't afford groceries, and then he was ten dollars behind for the check fee, which is now like I think three million dollars, right? If you bounce a check, who uses checks anyway? Don't raise your hands. I don't want to know. Anybody gets ahead of me with a check at the line? Oh, it's all right. I'll get over it. And then he says. For the poor you have with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you don't always have. Now, I don't want to get too far off topic, but I find this conclusion about the poor with us always very insightful. Here's why. It establishes that believers are not going to bring the kingdom of God on earth until Jesus comes and establishes it. Jesus said there will always be poor people, and he meant in his absence before the kingdom comes. And so any talk about us establishing the kingdom, getting the earth ready for Jesus to return, is contrary to Jesus' understanding. Should we ignore the poor and ignore social issues? Of course not. That's not the conclusion either. But we are definitely waiting for the return of Jesus to rapture us, not his second coming. And in the meantime, there are going to be not just poor people, but everything else that surrounds that, suffering, trouble, etc., Back to the dinner Jesus was enjoying, it seems he was emphasizing priorities. At that moment, during his last days on earth, ministering to him was a higher priority than feeding the poor. Ask a Christian what his or her priorities are, and you'll likely get this list in this numerical order. God, spouse, family, job, church. That's the big five. We need, however, to quit understanding these as a list of descending importance and realize they are all simultaneously our number one priority. For example, over the years, I've had people tell me that they are making their family more of a priority, and the result will be that they won't be serving in the church anymore, or they won't even be attending church very much anymore, because they don't have time, they say, for their family priorities and for their spiritual priorities. I have never had a person come to me and say, in order to emphasize their family more, they're not going to be going to work anymore. And you say, well, of course, because work is a what? A priority. 
because you have to get paid. But church is nothing on that list, right? You don't need church. I mean, when you say something like you're saying, I don't need church. I'll get to church when I feel like it. I'm going to buy that time that I need with my family or with my job or with whatever. I'm going to buy it from church and let that slide because that's really the only thing on the list that doesn't matter. And so if that's not going to be on your list, leave it off. And so you see where I'm getting at. But the truth is, I don't have to rebuke anybody for that because we're supposed to walk in all of those areas at the same time. Pastor Don McClure, who we love, I once heard him do a teaching in the book of Ephesians, and he got to that scripture that says you should walk circumspectly. Walk circumspectly. Walk in a circumference. He said one of the meanings of it could be that you walk in all directions at the same time. And you think, well, that's impossible physically. I can't walk down the aisle and walk out the door at the same time. I have to choose a direction. And that's how we think about priorities. I have to choose a priority and funnel myself into it. And Paul the Apostle says, no, you can walk in all directions at the same time spiritually. Filled with the Spirit, anointed by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, with the Spirit overflowing from your life... All of those five things can be your top priority at the same time. You can fire on all cylinders at once if you'd rather have uh, that illustration. Me you do not have always has to be understood in the context of Jesus' promise that after his resurrection by the Spirit, he would be with us always. So when Jesus says, I'm not always going to be around... He doesn't mean that he's not going to be with his disciples. So what does he mean? Well, he means the way Mary understood it in verse 8. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Jesus meant he would only be with them in his current incarnation for a few more hours. In other words, time was running out for him to be anointed for his burial. He'd be with them always, but there was a time limit on how long you could go before his crucifixion. All of Jesus' followers had heard him speak of his impending death. Only Mary really heard him, and only Mary acted upon it. How much she knew is questionable, but she must have figured that if Jesus were to be crucified, there would be no time afterward to properly anoint him for burial, so she was going to do it ahead of time as a statement of faith. It's a frequent complaint and an emotional pain people bear that we wish we had said something or done something before a loved one died. Mary was not going to be in a position to have those regrets. She knew Jesus was going to die. The custom in those days, because of love, was to anoint the body afterwards for burial. She said, I'm going to do that right now so that I have no regrets. Now here we are, verse 9, Assuredly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. More than 2,000 years later, removed from that dinner in Hanford, we are remembering Mary's act of worship. Every now and then someone astonished Jesus. In the gospel of Matthew, a centurion comes to Jesus and asks for a healing for his servant who is sick. And as Jesus is getting ready to go with him, he says, Oh, you don't have to come with me. All you have to do is speak the word, and I know my servant will be healed. And it says that Jesus marveled at his faith. Here in our verses, Jesus is obviously excited about what Mary has done. You and I can make Jesus marvel. He can be excited about us. It doesn't have to be a great thing, just something genuine from a heart of worship and adoration and belief. 
One day, when we see Jesus face to face at his reward seat, he wants to marvel at us. He wants to excitedly say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. There's a phrase I want to return to. It's in verse 8. It forms the basis of our two points regarding this story. It's the phrase, she did what she could. How do you read that? Because I think there's a wrong way to read it. If we read it, well, she didn't do very much, but she did what she could, then I think that's wrong. Mary did everything she could in light of the Lord's prediction that he was about to die. She was in a unique position to minister to him, and she went the distance. She held back nothing. I'd venture to say that no one else in Jesus' immediate party had anything of any value with which to anoint him for his burial. Mary did. And she gladly, generously did all she could. She didn't measure out a few drops as a symbolic gesture. She broke the flask, making it useless, and gave it all in one extravagant act of worship. If Mary had been like the other disciples, she might have turned to them and complained, why am I the only one who needs to sacrifice? Why don't you guys buy your own anointing oil? By the way, that's a really good way to crush your worship. When you step forward and you offer your sacrifice before God and then you realize that no one else is doing that and you think, what am I doing? Well, were you doing it for the Lord or not? And so Mary, she wasn't like that. She said, Jesus is gonna die. He needs to be anointed for burial. There won't be any time. I've got oil of spikenard. It's for my wedding dowry. But what's really more important to me right now? That I anoint my savior or that I maybe hope to get married one day and have this oil and this dowry. It wasn't even a decision for her, and she broke the end of that flask, and she poured it over the Lord. It fell to Mary, who had the oil, she had the heirloom, she had the dowry, and she did what she could. Each of us can do many similar things serving the Lord. I'm suggesting there'll be a time or times in your life when there is something you can uniquely do. Don't think it makes you indispensable. It doesn't. Remember Esther. If she refused to act, God would not be held hostage. It's not about God furthering his kingdom. It's about you furthering your worship. And so God will come and he'll say, Gene, this is something unique that you can do. I'm not calling anybody else to do this. You're in a unique place at a unique time with unique gifts and unique treasures in order to step forward and accomplish this. If you don't do it, I will still love you. But you will be disappointed. I don't even think the Lord will be disappointed in us because he knows our hearts. He knows how frail we are. We always try and motivate people and say, oh, you know, the Lord's gonna be disappointed. He's gonna gonna be sad, you know. When you get to heaven, he's gonna just, oh, well, Gene. No, he's not like that. You are gonna be disappointed because you're gonna look back and think, why didn't I break that vial? What's it, what's it really worth to me? What is it accomplished for me? What good is it when it could have been given to Jesus Christ at that time and in that place? Yes, to further his kingdom, but really just to further my understanding of him as king. Jesus, has told, uh, he told his disciples he was gonna die. That's the next event on the prophetic calendar. He says, guys, I'm gonna die. Mary heard that and she reacted to it and she acted accordingly. Jesus has told us the next event is his imminent return for us. At any moment, the Lord could be here. Thus, we do things in light of that event. 
that we're not anointing Jesus for burial anymore. We're doing things or ought to be doing things or get the opportunity to do things that speak of his imminent coming. Talk to the Lord and discover what it is that you can do for him in the light of his imminent return and then just do it. Let's pray.